One more week talking about music here on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. This week, it's a look back at my time as a hardcore punk rocker. Hope you all enjoy. Broadcasting to you from Santa Rosa, California, by way of the Icy Robots Radio Network, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prepare to witness the strength of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Hey everyone out there in podcast land, it is I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, back once more with episode 6 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. What is the IC Robots Radio Network, you ask yourself? Well, that's kind of a good question. We should probably put together some sort of uh, press release stating exactly uh, what we are, but um, uh, for lack of a, of a buzzworthy marketing term... Um, the IC Robots Radio Network is the brainchild of IC Robots himself, uh, the purveyor of the weekly Toys R Us report podcast, um, the This Boring Life podcast, among others, and um, a fellow who was gracious enough to allow me to begin broadcasting this show, the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on his network as well. Um there's a rumor out there that the network might be expanding, that we might be picking up another show or shows. Uh, hopefully that is true. Hopefully there'll be some news soon. But in the meantime, you can follow the IC Robots Facebook page over at Facebook.com. You can follow IC Robots uh, on Twitter. He's very handily over there at IC Robots. You can subscribe to the IC Robots Radio Network podcast feed at iTunes, at Stitcher, probably at Google Play. I don't know any any place that you pick up these podcast feeds. I don't know. I use iTunes myself, but to each their own. Um, you can also go to icrobots.com for all of our shows. And lastly, you can go over to supportthereport.com, where for as little as $1 a month, you can help us out with this listener-supported endeavor we're doing here at IC Robots Radio Network. As for me, you can go on over to genovega.wordpress.com, where you can find links to my Facebook page, my Twitter page. I'm over there, at Sensational Vega. Um, hit me up, friend request me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, I'll follow you back. Um, as far as the WordPress site, I generally have been posting show notes over there, but it's kind of time consuming and no one really looks at it, so I'm not sure if I'm going to keep doing that, but I might, we will see. But yeah, that's about all you need to know, and uh, on to today's show. Alright, alright, thanks for listening. Um, I'm happy to be back here with another episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network, episode 6, I believe. We made it 6 episodes deep. I'm still getting a handle on my production schedule over here at Sensational Manor. Uh, I've got kind of constrained um, time periods when I can actually work on the show, so I'm still kind of getting dialed in how frequent these episodes are going to be, but I guess we're, we're going along at an okay clip. I, I, I've been, I think, getting at least one a month out, I believe, which um, 
probably isn't too bad. You know, how, how can they uh, miss you if you won't go away, right? So, um, so I'm back here today with the hope of tying up this arc I've been on in the last few episodes, talking about uh, my the, the music that I listened to, music that I was a fan of growing up, and kind of some stories that went along with that. Um, I also talked last episode about how, um, in addition to production schedule, I'm trying to dial in the actual format of the show because it's been kind of all over the place thus far. And I kind of feel like I've gotten into this groove here that I'm comfortable with where um, first half or segment of the show, I'm probably going to talk about some things that have been going on in my life currently. And then the second half will be about whatever greater topic I've decided to do um, for that particular episode. And uh, with this show, I know it kind of... Icy Robots Radio Network in general, and this show is part of that, kind of tends to um, intersect with a lot of kind of retro stuff. Um, And uh, this show, I don't necessarily intend to be a strictly retro show. It's not only about stuff from days past and it's not dedicatedly about stuff from days past although you know stuff from days past does inform a lot of my aesthetic worldview so we are certainly going to talk about stuff that will be considered retro but um that's not the 100% goal of the show so I guess I, I only bring that up because it's not um it's not right to say I'm kind of dividing it into the First half of the show is going to be present day. Second half of the show is going to be the past because it could vary from from episode to episode. Why I'm sharing this uh, thought process with you, I have no idea. But just putting that out there as we move forward with the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. So to kick things off here today, I'm going to talk about something I intended to talk about last time around but ran out of time to get to. I'm going to talk about the upcoming release of a video game called Fire Pro Wrestling World. Warning! Warning! We are now going to talk about professional wrestling. Warning! Warning! Wrestling talk is about to begin. Warning! 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 We are about to enter a zone that may be difficult. Yeah, Fire Pro Wrestling is a uh, wrestling video game franchise, so I felt the need to bust out the uh, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast wrestling warning system there. So just in case you're someone that is sensitive to the topic of professional wrestling, uh, as always, you can skip ahead. But I promise this is more about um, video gaming than it is wrestling specific. But um, there, uh, so like I was going to say, there's a there's a video game. Coming out sometime in the near future, maybe not even near future, it might be a year or so out, but it's been been announced for release, um, uh, Fire Pro Wrestling World. And Fire Pro Wrestling World is going to be the latest installment in a franchise um, called Fire Pro Wrestling. And the Fire Pro Wrestling franchise started in 1989, I believe. It has spanned a number of consoles. Um, and basically what it is, is it is a sprite-based uh, video game. So it's got kind of um, sprite-based, like uh, the kind of graphics you'll remember from the Sega Genesis, um, kind of that era of gaming. Um, and I remember that's what piqued my interest in the Fire Pro franchise way back when, kind of in the early uh, to mid-2000s. Um, you know, it was the, the days, probably the PlayStation 2, um, so that style of graphic was uh, the law of the land, which is fine for certain kind of games. But I remember I came across some pictures, maybe on a website somewhere. I don't even remember where, 
of um, this wrestling video game, and it had all these different characters. Like it had like American wrestling characters. Like I remember there's a picture of like a sprite based Kane from WWE, but then it had like Japanese wrestlers and like American indie wrestlers. And I was like, what the hell? What game is this? Because at the time, um, uh, WWE was pretty much the only game in town at that point as far as American mainstream wrestling, and they'd take so they'd taken over the video game market, and they were starting to put out these really kind of by the numbers. Um, generic, boring wrestling video games. And um, I guess that brings me to, um, I should mention that um, prior to that era, wrestling video games had had a very um, storied history um, in video game, in the video game uh, landscape. Um, And that's uh, really what this segment is going to end up looking at, I think, more than anything else. But Getting back to FirePro specifically, so I had seen these images out there. I wondered what this game was all about. I wondered how it possibly had all these different characters from different companies that would, wouldn't be working together and wouldn't be licensing their images to someone that was using them all together. And um, so I looked into it a bit more, and this was um, – it was either in the earliest days of, like, the Wikipedia world um, or maybe shortly before, so it was, it was still a little bit harder to get um, – easy intel on these kind of subjects. But I managed to piece together that it was a Fire Pro is a Japanese wrestling franchise. And basically they would put out a game with all of these wrestling characters in it that looked exactly like um, wrestlers from the real world. But then they could slightly tweak the names so that it wasn't, you know, they were, they were kind of like skirting past uh, copyright laws. So like, um, and again, I don't know exactly how this would translate um, in Japanese, but as far as the way that the uh, names were translated in the American, uh, North American translations of the game, uh, you'd have a guy like um, one of my favorite ones, uh, the um, UFC fighter and Japanese professional wrestler uh, Don Fry. He uh, shows up in some of the Fire Pro video games as Bone Cry. So see. <laughs> Yeah, it's not Don Fry, it's Bone Cry, man, but he just, he's got the same Tom Selleck mustache and just looks really similar. But anyway, um, so there were these games that just had a crazy assortment of wrestlers and the whole sprite-based thing made it kind of cool because it's almost more fun sometimes, that kind of like cartoony, um, uh, really artsy aesthetic look as opposed to the like the photorealistic uh, approach. so I, I kind of admired Fire Pro from afar, and then eventually, because uh, at that point most of the games were, um, I think, Japanese only. I don't necessarily think that they had North American releases, and I have always been too lazy to go about figuring out how to get like Japanese versions of games to play on North American consoles and so on and so forth. I know there's ways to do that, but it's above my pay grade. But um, by around 2005 or so, there was a PlayStation 2 addition to the franchise, Fire Pro Wrestling Returns, that was officially released uh, for the North American market. And I came across, I got my copy of Fire Pro Wrestling Returns um, some years after it had already been released. Um, It's kind of funny because it was at a time when I was not really into either video games or wrestling. we, uh, the Sensational Family, had recently moved back here um, to the town of Santa Rosa, California after being away for some years. My oldest daughter, Miss Sensational 1, was about three. We had just had Miss Sensational 2. Um, 
the PlayStation 2 was already passe by this point. We were in the PlayStation 3 era, but I had stopped playing video games when Miss Sensational 1 was young because I was just way too busy keeping up with her. And um, But things had kind of settled down, and you know we had a new baby in the house, and so there was a lot of just kind of sitting around the house at that time. And so I had kind of uh, brought my PlayStation 2 back out of retirement and um, saw that um, – this fire pro game was available. And since I'd always been interested in that franchise, I bought a copy online, showed up at the house and this kind of coincided with me starting to watch wrestling again too. Um, but getting my hands on, uh, an actual copy of fire pro, a fire pro game. It was pretty amazing. There's like 500 different wrestlers, um, that come with the game. Um, and it's not just that there's such a variety of wrestlers, but the game mechanics are so detailed that like each guy wrestles specifically to his style. Like um, they, they got some crappy backyard juggalo type wrestlers on the game and they'll, they'll wrestle uh, like that. And then they got everything from that to like super crazy high flyers that do their high flying move, more map based technical guys will wrestle like that. Um, and you can do everything from having matches in like the Tokyo dome in front of uh, tens of thousands of people to like, a gym with like a couple people sitting on the floor. So it's a pretty deep game, pretty amazing. But what takes it to even another level is the whole customizable factor, which back then um, when I first started, I didn't really get into because it was pretty hard to, um, I, I w- wasn't big into creating my own wrestlers and there wasn't really an easy way to exchange other people's creative wrestlers. But it's possible in the game to basically create any wrestler that actually exists in the world or fictional ones too. Some people are into that, but as the years went by and I had this fire pro game and I would still bust it out all the time, um, or from time to time, let's say, um, I found that there was a whole online community where people were trading, um, their, uh, fire pro custom creations. And again, Oh, that's what it was. It was hard for me to get into because at the time when you're playing it on a PlayStation two, you had to have some sort of like can't even remember what it was called, some sort of drive in order to transfer the files onto there. And by the time I got into it, those were kind of hard to come by and pretty pricey, so I never bought one. But years went by, years went by. Eventually, uh, I myself got a PlayStation 3, um, and there was a re-release of Fire Pro Returns, specifically a, a PlayStation 3 version that you could purchase online from the PlayStation Network. And now, if you had a USB drive, you, you could... Uh, download people's uh, custom creations for Fire Pro online, put those files on a USB drive, transfer them over to your PlayStation 3, and you're good to go. So this opened up a whole new world for me um, because I started hanging around this website called uh, fpwarena.com where people post their custom creations. And I want to give a shout out to two individuals in particular who I um, got a lot of um, great material from and who've contributed massively to the Fire Pro community. And these are uh, DJKM and Desert Punk. And these two uh, FPW Arena users um, have put out so much uh, content. Um, DJKM has done um, like this whole like history of territorial wrestling with like just hundreds of wrestlers from like the sixties up through the death of the territories in the eighties and even early nineties. He's done like pioneer era wrestlers. He's done, um, all the mainstream, uh, and indie, uh, um, American wrestlers from like the eighties and nineties. Um, well, meanwhile, desert punk, um, does this amazing, um, series, um, called, uh, Puro Russo kingdom, uh, which is basically like, uh, once a year, a couple times a year, um, he'll put out an update and it's basically 
pretty much every single wrestler current wrestling currently wrestling in Japan. Um, just just staggering work. So, um, and and this isn't just like um, these guys th- throw up some characters that look like these guys. They actually go through and give them the appropriate uh, move sets, um, the appropriate kind of stats. So so you're using these guys and they're wrestling the way that they wrestle in real life, or they did historically in real life, depending on the time period you're using. But what this did for me is with all of these custom creations at my fingertips and all of the, the deep AI that goes into the Fire Pro series, I mean, they even have there, – there's a stat that wrestlers have called ukemi. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong with the Japanese term U-K-E-M-I, which determines how cooperative a wrestler is at um, allowing the other wrestler to do moves with them, you know, taking into account that most professional wrestling moves uh, require co- cooperation of both parties. I just, just phenomenal stuff. But what it did for me was I became less and less to the point where I wasn't interested at all in actually playing the game as far as controlling the characters. I would simply set up rosters, set up uh, fight cards, and then um, sit back and watch um, as the two AI-controlled wrestlers would um, have their match and see who was the better man, who was going to come out on top. It, it, it was amazing. It was like getting to be my own personal, well, I wouldn't want to be Vince McMahon because I'm not a, not a huge WWE fan, but my, my own wrestling um, uh, entrepreneur putting on these uh, fights and seeing what would actually happen. Um, it, it appealed to me in a similar way that this other game, um, which probably isn't appropriate for this conversation because we're talking more console wrestling games here, but there, there was a DOS based wrestling game back in the day called extreme warfare revenge, where there were no graphics. And all you did was like book events, sign talent, see how the crowd responded to the, to the matches you put together. And, um, this had some of those aspects, but not quite in the same way, but still something that someone like me with my weird obsessive tendencies to simulate my interests, uh, really got into and really got into almost a little bit too much. Yeah. The, the fire pro, uh, wrestling returns, um, user interface is clunky at best. So doing things like transferring files, um, copying wrestlers from one save file to another, um, Organizing rosters is all incredibly time consuming. And so I would often spend like three hours just on uh, roster maintenance before I would even be able to um, start simulating uh, the fight card that I'd put together. And add on top of that, that I would actually take um, notes on every event. I'd type out, you know, rankings for each uh, wrestling company that I was operating and uh, type out the results of each event. Um, This all started to add up to a lot of time. And um, I was starting to realize that I was spending more time simulating Fire Pro than I was actually watching real wrestling or playing other video games. And so every now and again, I would kind of be like, you know, that's it. I got to, I got to quit. I got to, I can't be wasting my time on fire pro anymore. So I delete the game off my PlayStation three. I I delete my save files. No, then like a week later, I'd want to, I'd be calling to me. And so I'd redownload the game, 
reestablish everything I'd already done before. So another, you know, 20 hours and then start playing again and then rinse and repeat. Kept doing this cycle over and over again. And it was really starting to make me feel pretty weird. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't, I wasn't in a good place psychologically with the whole, my whole fire pro obsession. It's funny. I, there was a, a link making the rounds on Facebook recently. That was like uh, one of these things where it's like shaming people for, for, uh, jokingly referring to having uh, OCD tendencies and how, um, like, first of all, it was grammatically incorrect. And second of all, unless you've been diagnosed, medically diagnosed, you you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And like, unless you've lost years of your life uh, uh, doing obsessive rituals or worrying about it. Yep, yep, that's me. So I, I, I uh, <laughs> haven't been diagnosed, but I'm going, I, I, without shame, will uh, refer to my more obsessive side of my personality. I mean, it's not, I probably, I probably don't have it as worse, as bad as some out there, but there's definitely something going on there. So fire pro is starting to kind of make me feel a little weird, but I couldn't quite shake it. And then out of the blue came the announcement that, uh, spike the company that made, uh, the old fire pro franchise that had been dormant since like 2005 or whenever fire pro wrestling returns came out is going to be releasing Fire Pro World on Steam for the PC and on um, the PlayStation 4, I believe. And they haven't released a whole lot of information about it yet other than they're pretty much scrapping um, having like the fake versions of real wrestlers uh, come built in with the game just because, you know, intellectual property and copyright has become such a big thing. Um, in the last decade or so, I mean, not that it's always hasn't always been a big thing, but the, you know, the the higher profile the franchise has, the less they can get away with, like, um, uh, you know, um, oh, he's not the million dollar man, he's the billion dollar man. So, um, yeah, they're not really doing. I guess there's going to be a few kind of generic fake wrestlers that come with the game, but really, the point of the game is user customization and apparently there's going to be the ability to connect and share created wrestlers online like directly and it looks like from what i've seen and what i've heard the graphics are pretty much going to be the same they're adding like a little bit more detail but it's still going to be the same old jank fire pro that we all know and love and i was getting really excited about it when i first heard the announcement and um, there was a really cool um announcement trailer they did for it where um, there's a famous video game designer Suda51. He's the man behind like Killer7 and the No More Heroes franchise. Just kind of eccentric Japanese video game designer that makes kind of weird art house uh, video games. But he actually got his start working on the Fire Pro franchise and he was behind this one infamous Fire Pro game. Not sure which one it is. You can look it up. But um, where there was actually a story mode and you uh, played as a fictional wrestler and at the end of the story, um, your nemesis or nemeses in the, in the story had kind of like ruined everything about your personal life. So I think that at, at the end, if I remember correctly, it's like the main character wins the title, but he's so despondent about um, everything that's happened to him in his personal life, he kills himself. And that's the end of the game. And I think Suda51 was the man behind that storyline. And uh, that, that's another big part of the, the Fire Pro mythos that got me uh, interested in it back when I was first hearing about it. Um, but uh, yeah, Suda51 did this amazing promo where he like runs into a wrestling ring and runs the ropes. And I think he even like clotheslines a fool. And you can could, you could tell the guy's just like loving it because he's a big wrestling fan apparently too. And he just shouts out that, you know, he got his start for Fire Pro. So he's cheering for Fire Pro and looking forward to Fire Pro World as, as we all are. But I've come to the realization that I probably will not be playing Fire Pro World. I'll check it out. I'll probably even buy a copy to support. But I'm I, I'm having to step away from Fire Pro. It just it's it's gotten ridiculous, man. Um, love it. Thank you to everyone who's ever. Uh, 
participated in the community, but it's time for me to to uh, leave my my boots in the ring, as it were, and, and walk away into into the sunset. Um, the, what I will say, the fact that um, this new Fire Pro game is coming out so many years later is pretty awesome, and it's just a, it's a great testimony to to the time that we live in. Again, I'll talk about this uh, before because of kind of the retro bent of this show. Um, because of the retro bent of a lot of stuff I'm interested in um, and a lot of the retro bent that a lot of people I know seem to have. They, a lot of times it, the, there's kind of this idea that that things were better then. And some things certainly did seem cooler then. Uh, and But I've said this before. There's some great things um, about being in this current time period. Um, I mean, frivolous things. There's people in the world totally suffering. and you know. But uh, for someone like me who's blessed enough to have – a life where I have the freedom and have the space to um, care about frivolous uh, aesthetic and artistic pursuits and concerns. Um, it's just pretty cool that, you know, back in the day, a game like Fire Pro would come out, there'd be like kind of a cult group around it, but there wasn't that great of a way of everyone communicating with each other and um, creating enough will to have something new happen so many years later. And that's exactly what happened here is because everyone is still hung out online together, still claiming Fire Pro that the developers realized, hey, we can make some money making a new game. Let's do it. And it's happening. And um, I don't think that would have happened, you know, had this situation been, you know, 20 years ago, um, you know, with some other um, intellectual property. I, I don't think there would have been the same ability for, um, you know, the fans on the ground to have the kind of community that led to Fire Pro World. So I'm happy about Fire Pro World. Um, I will, will probably not be playing it. But I do want to take just the last few minutes here uh, before we move on, j- just to look back at what how integral um, wrestling video games were as part of what made wrestling so cool to me as a kid. I don't think I would be the wrestling fan that I am today were it not for my history with wrestling video games and were it not for the quality of those games that existed um, historically. And I think for me, the big mother of them all, the one that started it all for me that... Um, helped really um, just explode my interest in both video games and wrestling into the stratosphere was that original um, pro wrestling game for the Nintendo Entertainment System. I have not played that game since it was current, since I was a kid, and uh, I've heard that it's actually a pretty horrible game. Um, And I don't remember the gameplay at all, but that wasn't important to me I was so taken with the cast of characters in that game and how each one was different and each one had their own strengths and their own weaknesses. And um, I liked how I saw that same thing play out in, in real life professional wrestling at the time. That's something actually that, that is, is sorely lacking in mainstream professional wrestling nowadays with WWE being a monopoly company and their presentation just being really homogenous. Um, everyone kind of wrestles the same way. Um, there's no real difference between characters. I mean, each character has their own gimmick or whatever, but it, it just, it's not, it's not like it was, um, in the eighties where you had, you know, giants, you had, uh, then you had like kind of the buffed bodybuilder guys and you had like the weird masked high flyer guys. And then you had, um, going into the nineties, introduced like the hardcore deathmatch guys and the just different, different types, different variety, variety was the whole name of the game. And that variety was the name of the game with, uh, pro wrestling for the NES. I'm just totally captivated by those different characters. Love trying to figure out what was up with each one, um, reading the little minimal backstory they'd give for each of them and then extrapolating that on my own mind. Um, 
funny aside from that, I never owned that game. Um, some friends of my parents that had kids, we'd go to visit them, and they had a Nintendo long before I did, and they had that game, and I always try to play it. But it's one of these situations where the kids never wanted to play the Nintendo because it was their house, and they played it all the time, and they had people visiting, so they wanted to go play outside and do like weird crap like that. But I didn't have a Nintendo, so it's like, dude, let's just sit here playing Nintendo all day, which they weren't having, so there'd always be kind of a power struggle. But um, I remember on the occasions that we would play um, – uh, Nintendo, we'd play that pro wrestling game, and I guess we'd be playing like two 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 players. You know, one person would be playing against the other. So, and there was me and my brother, and then they had four kids. So everyone would be vying for who got a chance. And I remember the youngest daughter of the family that we would be visiting would want to get in on it, and she would always say, because she's pretty little, and she still had that kind of little kid speech impediment. I want to play King Swendor. I want to play King Swendor, and uh, that was there was a character King Slender who. Um, Years later, looking back, realized he was he was based off of uh, kind of um, '80s uh, Ric Flair, and so now whenever I see Ric Flair, I hear in my mind, "I want to play King Swendor. I want to play King Swendor." So yeah, the 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 mark that pro wrestling for the NES made on me. But anyway, yeah, it, that game just got me so pumped up about wrestling and the, the its wild universe of characters and what was possible. And similar thing, I remember I was really into that um, arcade wrestling game. I think it was called um, like Saturday Saturday Night Slam Masters, and it was uh, pro wrestlers, but it was kind of more in the format of like a fighting game, like a, a Street Fighter Two type game. But again, I, there each character there were a wild cast, and they each had their own deal, and I was really into that. And it's the same reason why fighting games appealed to me once they became a big thing. And it was still that the, the pro wrestling aspect of, of those games, the characters, the, the, the struggle between the characters, the, um, what each character brought to the dance. It's kind of the enter the dragon formula with that tournament. Same thing made early UFC so great, which is lacking in UFC now too, that everyone's just a homogenized dude in trunks um, with a great physique. You know, you used to have big fat guys and skinny guys and in between and, you know, different people with different styles. You know, I claim this style. That, that's not a thing anymore. But uh, anyway, so just wanted to take that little stroll down memory lane. Um, wanted to also give a shout out to the ones that got away. There were a couple uh, wrestling video games that I always wanted to play but never got my hands on. The same people behind Fire Pro put out a series for the PlayStation 2 called King of Coliseum. And, and that was actually like a um, officially licensed game that used real Japanese wrestlers and had kind of more PlayStation 2 standard type graphics. And those games, King of Coliseum and King of Coliseum 2, I've always heard to be two of the best wrestling games ever made, but I've never had a chance to, to uh, get acquainted with them. Um, there's also one that I think the game itself is supposed to be pretty crappy, but just the idea appeals to me. And it's that um, FMW, FMW, which is kind of like the Japanese predecessor of ECW. It was this crazy hardcore deathmatch promotion, but then they'd also do weird things like bring in like the Rock and Roll Express and like a... Um, I think, uh, I can't remember who it was, but like a pro boxer wrestled in there and uh, just kind of big spectacle 90s promotion in Japan. They had a video game, but that was more, you were like the the um, founder of FMW at Sushi Onita and it was like a scrolling beat-em-up game. Um, then there's also a game, it was like an all-Japan pro wrestling role-playing game where you played as all-Japan pro wrestling's founder, Giant Baba, kind of going around. Um, it was like a 
I think Super Nintendo era looking, um, if you remember the RPGs from that era, like Secret of Evermore and games like that, but it was all Japan pro wrestling. So <laughs> I can't remember the name of that one, but it's out there. Um, so someday, maybe I will find an emulator or something and, and, and do my time with that. Um, oh, and then last, last, uh, point on this topic. I totally forgot when I was talking about games, it meant a lot to me, and I can't believe I overlooked this. Really the greatest pro wrestling game in in history, in my mind. Um, and this varies from person to person because there's several games that use this engine, but this is the one that, that I have the, the fondest spot for in my heart, was WCW versus NWO Revenge. And it was part of the the THQ Aki line of wrestling video games that started with like Virtua Pro Wrestler um, and Virtua Pro 2. And then it was like the WCW uh, NWO Revenge game. They used it for WrestleMania 2000. It's also pretty much the underlying engine, I think, for, for the No Mercy game that a lot of people think highly of. But WCW versus NWO Revenge, for me, that was like the, the penultimate wrestling game. It, it coincided with my love for WCW and for the NWO at that time. NWO for life. Um, great times, great memories. But it's time to move on. It's time to talk about music. It's time to talk about my life as a hardcore punk rocker in the 1990s. And that's where we're going to get to next on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. You are listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Okay, let's talk about music here on episode six of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Let's get this topic uh, over and done with once and for all, put it in the rear view, move on to something else. I'm thinking this might even end up being a bit of a supersized episode because I really do want to wrap things up here on the music front. We have been talking the last few episodes about my history um, being a fan of popular music. We talked about early days of MTV. We talked about hair metal. We talked about... Michael Jackson, we talked about 80s pop music, we talked about breakdancing, we talked about the Beatles, we talked about more hair metal, we talked about thrash metal, and we left things off last time talking about my interest in um, one of the early bands that was part of the kind of 90s alternative rock movement um, called Faith No More. And I was starting to talk about how 
Faith No More kind of served as a bridge for me between kind of straight ahead thrash metal music and into more, for lack of a better term, alternative forms of rock music, um, primarily um, uh, punk rock music. So um, when I left you last time, I was talking about how part of the appeal of Faith No More was their sort of mysterious, charismatic, crazy-seeming lead singer Mike Patton and the fact that he, word on the street, word on the, 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 the food court area of Herbert Slater Junior High School during brunch recess was that um, he was in another band. He was in Faith No More, but he also sang in a band that wasn't even, they didn't even have a major rec, uh, label record deal. Um, the only way you could hear their music was to go downtown to a local record store called The Last Record Store and buy their demo cassette tapes. Um, and at first, I thought this seemed kind of fantastical, like I wasn't sure if it was real, but um, someone pointed out that in the music video for the song Epic, which was kind of one of Faith No More's big hit songs, um, there's a scene in the video where Mike Patton is actually wearing a t-shirt, um, from the band, Mr. Bungle, which was his second band. And that, that added fuel to the fire because apparently you could buy that t-shirt at the last record store. So I got very interested in the idea of going down, uh, to the last record store, which is downtown in Santa Rosa, um, about a, I think it was like a 30-minute bike ride from my parents' house, a 30-minute skateboard ride. We've talked about skateboarding on the show before, and around this time of life, I still had a skateboard, and I pretty much used it to, um, if you uh, kind of went out from my parents' house, you can get onto a main, kind of a main uh, street here in Santa Rosa, Sonoma Avenue, and it's just kind of a straight line to downtown. And so um, I was able to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, coffee went down wrong there. I uh, could pilot my skateboard functionally enough that I could stand on it and go in a straight line to downtown. Excuse me one moment here. <coughs> very unprofessional. Sorry about that. So um, I, I became very interested in the idea of going to the last record store and getting this Mr. Bungle stuff. So finally I did, and I either rode my bike or rode my skateboard down there. And um, it turns out I went in and I talked to one of the fellows behind the counter, and it was one of the two guys who owned the place. They're still the owners to this day. My friend... Uh, Jerry, who I talked about on last episode, works for them, works at the record store. Um, and they informed me that the demo tape was indeed sold out and asked when they'd be getting more. And they were kind of trying to explain to me that it wasn't like, you know, a music land situation or a warehouse record situation where it was like a major manufacturer was going to send them more tapes. They're like, I don't know, we'll get them like if they ever make any more and, and, and give them to us, you know, because these were just homemade demo tapes or studio made demo tapes, whatever. Um, and then I asked about the T-shirts and I believe they were sold out of those too. So I struck out on both fronts. Um I did, however, step into a bonafide record store for the first time on that trip. Um, I, I might have been in there before. And, and like I mentioned in a previous episode, there, there was that store Cheap Thrills in uh, Atascadero, California, where I bought my break-in soundtrack cassette tape, which, which was kind of a similar store to the last record store. But I, I was younger then and it didn't have quite the same impact. But when I went into the last record store for the first time, it was kind of a big deal. Um, IC Robots had his recent... Um, this Morning Life show about comic book stores. 
And if you listen to that, he talked about going into the comic book store, uh, Best of Two Worlds, for the first time here in Santa Rosa, California. There's a store that used to be downtown on 4th Street next to the last record store where it used to be on 4th Street um, during the time period of the story that I'm telling. And um, ISR and I talked off air, and um, I, too, shopped at Best of Two Worlds when I was a youth. It was the first real comic book store I'd ever gone to, and I had kind of similar experiences to what he described in uh, This Boring Life. But one thing we were talking about, that uh, about these kind of specialty shops that isn't really a thing anymore, it seems like. Um, we're talking about part of what was so magical about going into that store was that it felt like there was so much merchandise in there that you could never possibly catalog everything that was in there. It was just, there were like, you know, comic book posters just kind of growing out of the wall, like stacks of graphic novels that someone had forgotten 20 years previously, just kind of left over there for someone to discover. Um, you know, um, just a random prints kind of, um, dropping out of the ceiling in front of you. And maybe they, they disappear when you leave the store and a new one takes its place. You know, it was, it was very kind of like wizardry shop type, type deal. I know ISR doesn't like magic, but it's kind of kind of the feeling that I used to get going into the specialty shops. And the same thing with the last record store back then. I mean, the last record store still exists now, different location, but it's much um, kind of neater and more well-merchandised. Back then, it just felt like there were just like, man, just boxes of records everywhere. And you could never possibly comb through all of them. There was always going to be something new to discover. And so I walked in there for the first time looking for that Mr. Bungle stuff and finding out that it was sold out. But that was okay because I saw stuff in there that just blew my mind. I saw they had a metal section. And at this point, you know, I, I, I was comfortable with metal and it wasn't that big of a deal to me. And I had so much metal from like the whole Columbia House tape thing. I had tons of metal tapes. But I saw their punk section. And I started kind of looking through some of the vinyl records in their punk section. And I saw these bands that all looked like, um, I mean, metal bands look theatrical, but these bands um, kind of look theatrical in a different sort of way, in a more um, kind of relatable way. Um, some of them are kind of over the top, but some of them are more like, I could sort of see myself, like I see myself in this band kind of somehow. Um, and just kind of cool cover artwork and everything. And, and I had never heard of these bands, or, or if I had, it just been kind of whispers and passing. Um, I remember that um, ISR mentioned on that same This Boring Life episode that um, there used to be a place in downtown Santa Rosa called Anarchy Alley where punk rockers uh, hung out. And that place was kind of in its dying days when I first moved to Santa Rosa. And I remember seeing it from afar and seeing all these like these, these colorful characters with like dyed mohawks and army jackets. And they almost kind of appealed to me the same way the professional wrestlers did. They were, they were, they were characters. You know, they were, they were real people, but they were putting on kind of a character persona. And we'll talk about this more to come because it turns out most punk rockers do not like to think of it that way. They think that they're actually, um, you know, they got to be me, man. They're, they're, but no, what always appealed to me about it was like, yeah, man, like go out there, turn yourself into a character, be a little theatrical, be a little interesting, a little, little actually different than the norm and not trying to conform to what you think is different than the norm, which really is what punk rock's all about. But we'll get to that. But anyway, um, so, yeah, Anarchy Alley was around, so I knew, kind of, it was out there in the ether that there was this thing, punk rock, and it always was kind of interesting to me. And I remember um, under a freeway um, overpass, kind of near the fairgrounds here in Santa Rosa, someone had spray-painted Sex Pistols, just uh, in the word, Sex Pistols, the band name, and that was there forever. And I think maybe ISR talked about this, how back in the day, someone would do graffiti and be around for like five years, <laughs> or now it gets, you know, the city comes out and, and paints over it as soon as they, they can. 
Um, but yeah, that, that graffiti was up forever. And I just, I, what does this mean? Sex pistols There's some danger there. I need to know more about this. So anyway, I was in the last record store looking through the punk section. Um, and I was like, man, this is a whole new avenue. Um, and the whole vinyl record thing too. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. tapes are, are one thing, but I have a lot of tapes, but these records, they're kind of all big and it's almost like co- collecting comic books, which we'll talk about on another episode. But, um, I don't know. It just really appealed to me. I don't know if I bought anything on that first trip, but it planted the seeds. So at this point, I was now pretty much on a mission. I'd, I'd become fully enamored with the whole Faith No More thing. I'd seen the punk section of the last record store. I um, kept listening to thrash metal, kept listening to Faith No More. I decided I was going to start growing my hair long to emulate Mike Patton. Um, but that I also wanted to get, he had that kind of nineties haircut where it was like long, but like shaved kind of around the sides. So I, I was going to get that once my hair got long enough. Um, I, I struck out on get, buying a Mr. Bungle shirt. So I made my own, I bought a white t-shirt and some fabric pens and tried my best to draw the Mr. Bungle logo on it. Um, and, um, I, decided I you know I was determined I wanted to know more about punk music I wanted to know what to listen to and I remembered back to my um, days of failing at skateboarding how when I'd looked at Thrasher magazines there were always sections where they were advertising band t-shirts and I was pretty sure that a lot of those bands were punk bands so I went and I found a copy of Thrasher magazine and I flipped to the back where all the t-shirt ads were and sure enough there were all kinds of shirts being sold um, for different bands. That's kind of interesting thinking uh, back on that too because I wonder I, – I don't remember who was behind those advertisements, like who were merchandising these band T-shirts and who who were manufacturing them, who was getting the, the proceeds. It's kind of weird because you don't really – there is no – like nowadays um, there's no like central hub like that for, for – um, you know, indie band merchandise, you know, it's kind of to each their own. But back then there were these, these, uh, um, you know, uh, hubs and Thrasher magazines and other magazines like that, but whatever. Anyway, so I went through, I come through, I started picking out names. I saw DRI, I saw Corrosion of Conformity. I saw The Exploited. I saw, um, who else did I see? I saw The Misfits. Uh, I saw The Circle Jerks. I saw Black Flag so on and so forth so I started um, saving up some money riding the old skateboard or the bike down to the last record store and slowly but surely accumulating some music from these bands and my, my first round of punk bands were all kind of the more cliche well known 80s punk bands uh, Dead Kennedys um, again Black Flag um, what else did I listen to back then I was into the Circle Jerks um, bands like that a lot, a lot of like um either Southern California bands or bands from the East Coast, uh, Bad Brains, uh, Minor Threat. Um, but this all took a different turn when... Oh, also, eventually I got my own Mr. Bungle shirt. I never did get the demo tape. Uh, but eventually they signed a Warner Brothers and I got their um, uh, uh, debut uh, major label record on cassette. But by that point, the... the the, the magic was kind of gone. The ship had kind of sailed, but we'll get to that. Um, I, uh, I, I still was, um, the, these first forays into punk, I was still buying stuff pretty much on cassette tape from the last record store. I, I didn't want to delve into vinyl yet. Cause I don't really have a way of playing it. And truth be told, like, that's always been my deal with vinyl. Like I, um, uh, I went through a phase of buying vinyl records for a while, but it was always just so much. It was like the most unwieldy medium for listening to music. And I always cared more about listening to the music than collecting the, the, um, 
physical media. And I know that varies from person to person. But for me, I, I was just never a big vinyl record guy. Um, no offense if that's your thing. Go for it. But um, anyway, um, a funny thing happened. I came across this cassette tape at the last record store, and it was from a band called Operation Ivy. And this band just sounded so much different than anything else I'd ever heard. Just super energetic, super real, super raw. And, um, but I, I couldn't find mention of them anywhere else. And I, I looked at the tape and they were on a record label called Lookout Records and it said like, um, you know, Berkeley, California. I was like, so, oh, this band is kind of from around here because Berkeley's not that far, but that's weird. So I was into them, but that was kind of on the back burner. Um, and then, Something happened that was kind of a monumental uh, occasion. Um, I found out that Mike Patton's secondary band, Mr. Bungle, that they were going to be playing a show a half an hour away in Petaluma, California at a venue called the Phoenix Theater. So me and a few friends of mine at the time, uh, one was a guy named Jacob, the other one was a guy named John, and this was not the John that I've talked about several times before on this show. I may have mentioned this one once. This was kind of a, a, I don't want to call him secondary, not that there's anything secondary about the guy, but a a John that I didn't spend as much time with and haven't known for as long or stayed in touch with as the other John. Um, But Jacob and John, we decided to go to the Mr. Bungle concert. We bought our tickets from the last record store. I think by this point, I might have actually gotten my hands on a um, legit manufactured Mr. Bungle t-shirt and was able to ditch my kind of sorry homemade one. Um, We convinced some configuration of our parents to take us to this show. And this would become a thing for years to come as uh, I began regularly attending shows at the Phoenix Theater. But for the first few years, no one um, in our peer group was of driving age. So we would have to get usually like one parent would drive us there and the other parent would uh, pick us up, which was kind of a big undertaking for them. I'm looking back I just kind of, oh, of course they're going to do it. But, you know, it's a Props to those parents because it was like a half-hour drive from Santa Rosa to the Phoenix Theater, and the pickup involved like going out there and waiting around at like you know eleven o'clock midnight, you know. So awfully nice of them to enable our our um, concert going. Um, well, uh, they, they were called shows. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment, but our show-going habit back then. Um, so we got our tickets. Um, the night came. It was time to go. Uh, we all met up at my parents' house. Um, I remember I was wearing some baggy red flannel pants, uh, Mr. Bungle t-shirt. I had kind of a mullet going on because I was trying to grow my hair long with the, the sides kind of awkwardly shaved. Um, we went out there to Petaluma. We showed up at the Phoenix Theater, and uh, the place was packed. Um, I don't even really remember. I, I, just, I remember the show itself, but I don't really remember um, entering the Phoenix for the first time. It's weird. I, I remember that more vividly um, a few shows down the road. But um, we went there. It was packed. Um, there were a lot of quote-unquote popular girls from our um, – at the time, I was still at Slater Junior High School in ninth grade um, – because I guess like it had become kind of trendy to like have a crush on Mike Patton, so they were all there to see him. Um, a lot of people there. Um, the funny thing is, when it was finally time for them to take the stage, dude wore a mask the entire time. <laughs> so uh, it, it was just a great troll job. There were all these people there to see him because he was a famous rock star, and dude just straight wore a mask. And so <laughs> there was some speculation as to whether it was actually him. Um, and so on and so forth. 
But so the show itself, um, Mr. Bungle was a headlining act. Um, this band called the Deli Creeps opened, and they feature a guitar player or featured a guitar player named Buckethead. Buckethead went on to, um, he's done a bunch of different things, kind of weird avant-garde metal guitar virtuoso. Uh, he was in a ver- one of the versions, one of the Chinese democracy era versions of Guns N' Roses later on. Wears kind of a, he, not kind of, he wears a Michael Myers mask and like a Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket over his head. Um, Buckethead. Um, so he was kind of the first thing I saw, and he was just wild. He climbed up into the rafters of the of the theater and was like just doing crazy guitar solos, and just I I, I didn't know exactly what I was watching. I was kind of kind of exciting, kind of creepy at the same time. Um, a couple other bands played. Uh, one of the bands that played on this show was a band called Disciples of Ed, and they were popular in this area at the time. And keep in mind, even though I'm saying like I wanted to get into punk music, I was interested in punk music at this time, I was doing this with like no, um, just completely guileless. Like I didn't know as often in these these stories from back when. I, I had no blueprint to work off of. I was learning as I went. And so pretty much any kind of offbeat rock music was more or less punk to me. But what was really going on at this show, um, Mr. Bungle was kind of part of this musical genre at the time, although their music changed quite a bit as they continued. But at the time, there was this fad of kind of like funk music. Um, I I think they used to call it kind of, um, they would call it like punk funk, um, where you'd have these bands that played these kind of like ding you know, like funk riffs, and then the guy would be kind of like, kind of like rapping, quote unquote. Uh, really atrocious music looking back, but you know, I, I didn't know any better. So, Disciples of Ed played, and you know, they're a god awful band, but their stage show was really good for what it was and for the time and everything. So, it was high energy, and everyone was into it. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So, this is like, you know, another, another band to add to the list. And I think shortly after that show, I bought their. Um, demo tape at the last record store but um so mr bungle played it was kind of cool it was i'll have to admit though it was kind of anticlimactic with the whole mask thing because as hilarious as that is looking back at the time even i you know i'm not gonna say i had a crush on mike Patton, but i, I wouldn't mind seeing the guy <laughs> that's kind of why we were all there but i think he just wanted to prove a point that he was there to play with this band and f you know his other stuff uh you were coming to see this side of him but so the show happened, uh, went off without a hitch, and we, um, me and my friends realized we could start doing this all the time because we're realizing every time we go to the last record store, there's flyers for the next kind of upcoming slew of shows at the Phoenix Theater. Um, so the next show I went to there was quite a different scene. I went there with the guy that I'd gone to the Mr. Bungle show with, uh, Jacob. And uh, so now the Phoenix Theater, it's like an old... Um, I think it was originally like an opera house built in the early 1900s. Then I think it burned down or had some fire damage. It was kind of renovated in the 20s and was a movie theater. It was kind of this old ornate looking building. Um, fits about, I think capacity somewhere around 500 people. Um, and uh, so the second show where the Mr. Bungo show had literally been packed, um, this show, uh, Jacob and I showed up. I think we showed up like, you know, an hour early or whatever. And this was to see a band called Fugazi. And Fugazi now is um, a very well-known band, um, well-known punk rock band, kind of infamous for, um, I think to this day, like they only charge $5 for their shows. Kind of real underground darling band. Um, but at the time... Um, I only recognized the name because I'd seen their records at the last record store. I assumed they were some band that had been around forever and was super famous. Um, I think at this time they were actually a fairly new band. 
um, and uh, they had arisen from the ashes of, among other bands, the famous hardcore DC punk band Minor Threat. But anyway, um, I assumed, like I said, that they'd been around forever, and I also assumed that anyone that playing at the Phoenix Theater was just a, a, a uh, uh, famous, um, you know, it, successful, uh, world-class rock star performer. You know, I, I just assumed if you were on stage there, you must be, it was the same thing as like going to like, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the uh, Cow Palace to see Nirvana, which I did um, a few years later. But um, uh, so we showed up at the show super early. There's no one there. Then eventually two other dudes are there waiting to get in. And now this was more of a bonafide, it was a bonafide punk show. Um, and we're there in our ragtag kind of Mr. Bungley, like, Lots of flannel, lots of plaid, oversized stuff, mullets, you know, thinking it's all just one big jumble and all this 90s freaky kid stuff is all the same. But this is before we'd been schooled that there were very um, specific um, uh, specific uh, protocols and dress codes to each different uh, iteration of 90s alternative counterculture. So these two kind of surly-looking, skatery-looking guys are waiting to get in, and I walk up to him, and it's like, hey, guys, are you here for the concert? <laughs> like, dudes just look at me, and one of them's like, all right, look, homosexual expletive, it's not a concert, it's a show. And that's where I learned this important distinction, that one, when one was going to um, a venue like the Phoenix Theater where the capacity is in the hundreds and you're going to see kind of underground bands, one is going to a show. A concert now, that's more something that takes place in an arena, coliseum. That's like going to see ACDC, you're going to the ACDC concert. Going to see Fugazi, you're going to the Fugazi show. So thankfully this fellow smartened me up, and I, I continue to try to chat with him and he wasn't having any of it. But for some reason, unlike in um, prior instances where stuff like this had happened, like with the skaters in episode two or with the my attempts at breakdancing, I just like no-sold it. I I, I, just, I was like, you know, I, I, I've got a ticket too. I'm here to rock out as well. So I'm just going to stand my ground and keep gawking here like an idiot trying to make awkward small talk. And so um, these guys kind of brushed us off and we hung around and uh, eventually it was time to go inside. The show started and like I think I mentioned a few minutes ago, it was a very different scene than the Mr. Bungle show. Uh, there were probably like, I don't know, it felt like maybe 20 people there. I don't know, it's kind of weird with the Phoenix Theater because the Phoenix Theater stage room, it's kind of this big cavernous room and so um, unlike at a smaller club where you pack in like, you know, 50 people and it seems like a couple hundred, um, at the Phoenix, it really seems uh, kind of uh, deserted in there unless there are hundreds of people. And there definitely were not hundreds of people at the show. It was Fugazi and I think maybe uh, another Washington, D.C. punk band, The Nation of Ulysses, opened up for them. I can't remember who else played on that show, but um, it was all right. I wasn't really able to comprehend their shtick at the time. And even to this day, I, I was never a huge Fugazi fan. I'm a really big Minor Threat fan. Um, Ian McKay from Fugazi, his original band, Minor Threat, one of my favorite bands of all time, but never really felt Fugazi. A little, little pretentious, a little uh, meandering, and uh, not my kind of thing. I'm more into the straight-ahead stupid rock, as you may have been able to pick up so far with my hair metal interests and my 80s pop interests. I like that kind of, you know... Uh, just kind of simple anthemic stuff. And uh, Fugazi has its anthemic moments, but whatever. It's uh, neither here nor there right now. So we went to that show, kept going to shows. Um, next show we went to actually um, had a girlfriend by that point um, who is now my wife, uh, 
Ms. Sensational. We went to go see uh, No Means No, uh, Canadian punk band, and um, I think maybe uh, this local band um, that is, has some notoriety, Victims Family, played on that show. And um, a band called Green Day played. And Green Day, um, we're going to keep talking about Green Day. They, they factor in pretty huge to my whole music history in a minute here. But Green Day, um, they, they didn't quite make the impact on me at that show that they were going to a few shows down the road. But they did stand out to me because I thought, you know, they were kind of overshadowed at that show. They were, they were maybe the opening band. And uh, everyone was there to see No Means No. Uh, but they, they kind of stood out to me because they're playing this kind of poppy, catchy music. But then, like, the bass player was wearing an Iron Maiden shirt. And I just thought that was cool how it was like the look he was sporting didn't necessarily exactly coincide with the music he was playing. I thought that was a little more um, interesting than how a lot of bands are where it's just like the dudes look exactly how you'd expect them to look for the music that they're playing. But anyway, I, I didn't think a whole lot about Green Day. It was a pretty brief encounter at that time. So by this point, going to see bands play at the Phoenix Theater had kind of become my main um, focus, or the main thing that was kind of driving my existence at that time. But still without a real um, dedicated genre that I was into, I was just kind of into anything 90s and alternative at that time, um, which in some ways is good because, you know, it's good to have an open mind. In other, in other ways, it's bad because I hadn't yet learned to discern which stuff just totally sucked. And uh, speaking of stuff that totally sucked... There was a band that played quite often, and in fact, I think that they yeah they had played at that um, original Mr. Bungle show I went to. This band called the Disciples of Ed, and they were from nearby Cloverdale, California. And Disciples of Ed were the epitome of that kind of '90s funk punk music that I was talking about. <laughs> Just horrible, uh, like mixture of like funk, disco, guitar chords, and kind of rappy chanty uh, uh, white guy funk uh, singing and just like cheesy lyrics um, but they were really popular at the time and they played a lot and we'd go to their shows and their shows were always fun because they were just packed and they felt like oh so yeah this is like again like I, I thought every band that played at the Phoenix was just like a, a um, major label recording artist world renowned rock star um, but when Disciples of Ed would play they'd pretty much fill the place so it really felt like that it felt like we were going to this real uh Real event. Um, but one day, something interesting happened, and I went to a Disciples of Edge show, and that band Green Day uh, played before them. And I really got to take in Green Day this time. And I guess first I should just make an aside. I, I'm kind of talking about Green Day like everyone knows what I'm talking about. And I, guess, I guess people should. They're like a huge band now, right? Like I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty out of the loop as far as, um, you know, I have certain things in my life that, that seem like everyone knows about to me, but I'm in, I'm in a total bubble. I'm in a bubble of like esoteric professional wrestling fans and um, kind of like indie punk music and a few other things. But but yeah, as far as I understand, they're like this huge international phenomenon Green Day. They're like in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and everything, which is still hard for me to wrap my head around. But back in 1992 or 93 or whatever, they were a local Bay Area band that was playing all over uh, Northern California where I lived. They'd play high school cafeterias. They'd play the Phoenix Theater. They'd play at this famous punk club called uh, 924 Gilman Street down in Berkeley um, played all over the place and um, when I saw them here this night opening up for Disciples of Ed uh, the one thing about Green Day is back then and and to this day um, a lot of people would jeer them make fun of them 
Um, there's always this bizarre idea because they're like a punk band, but they're pretty poppy. And so there was always this idea, well, well they're not real punk. Because there's this strange misconception that punk music is all just super hardcore, yelly, uh, you know, black flag type stuff, which, you know, that is certainly a genre of punk rock music and certainly has its place. But if you really look back at the history of punk music, the earliest um, punk bands, whether um, you're looking at um, the New York Dolls or you're looking at the Ramones, or you're looking at the Sex Pistols, they're all relatively poppy bands. They're all playing kind of straight-ahead rock and roll music, um, just kind of no frills, um, just really real and raw, but it's always like crap you can sing along to and is tuneful and even when like with the Sex Pistols a little bit snotty, but it's still, Sex Pistols are a pop rock band, like a, a snotty pop rock band. And um, that's what Green Day was and is. And their sounds definitely changed over the years. But when I saw them that night, you know, I'd heard uh, older kids at my school making fun of them, kids that were into music. Um, and there were people at the Disciples of Ed show making fun of them because they're certainly like the farthest thing from that just cheesy, hokey, 90s punk funk. You know, they, they were like, they were legit. But, you know, sometimes when a fad is the thing that is uh, clouding everyone's vision at the time, something that's legit is the thing that gets made fun of, if that makes any sense. But at least that's my experience in life. Um, but so Green Day played and all of a sudden it just made everything else at that show, all the other funk bands that played looked so stupid. Because these guys came out, and there was just something about them. It was like, you know, the, here they are playing to a couple hundred people, but it, they may as well have been, been playing like a huge arena or something. They just, there's something about their sound, something about the tightness of their sound, something about their presence on stage. You can make fun of them all you want, but, you know, they, they are where they are for a reason. And I saw that reason that night. And me and this guy named Tony that I kind of knew from school but didn't know super well, both were at that show and we both had that same epiphany and both just started like dancing around, slamming around to Green Day, just having the time of our life. And uh, couldn't go back to the, to the punk funk after that. I, that was over for me. Um, but Green Day now, that was something, you know, what was, what, what was this? What was going on here? So I had that Green Day epiphany, but I was still kind of in that, zone of being in this sort of primordial ooze of 90s alternativeness that didn't make any sense. Like, you know, uh, a Metallica hat with like a tie-dye Jimi Hendrix shirt and, uh, you know, um, baggy flannel pants because that's what the funk punk dudes wore. Just a real mess, mishmash, uh, genre mix-up. And again, you know, I'm all for genre mixing, but only when it makes sense. And this was just... Just 90s uh, badness um, to its core. And um, there were some uh, some of the older kids at, at my – at this point, I was in high school. And at our high school, Montgomery High School, um, you could uh, – it was funny. It was an open campus at the time, which it seems like uh, – whatever adult thought it was a good idea to allow high school kids to roam freely during the school day. I mean, as a high school student, it was great, but it just – it's funny to me that that ever flew. But anyway um, – I think I talked about this before, actually, in uh, episode uh, two, I believe, the skateboarding episode. But anyway, uh, at Montgomery High School, at lunch or uh, break or whatever, you could just walk off campus to the, where the, there was a bridge over a creek, and everyone would hang out over there smoking cigarettes because it wasn't on school property, so they couldn't enforce what we were doing. 
um, which is hilarious. But yeah, so you had all these high school kids out there just chain smoking at lunch. Um, but I would be out there smoking and there'd be older kids with more defined tastes. And I started to get made fun of a little bit. Like I was wearing a Metallica hat one day and these older kids are, I knew were kind of into punkish music that I, I looked up to like, Oh, look at that Hesher over there. That was the first time I heard that term Hesher. Uh, and I kind of realized, Oh, heavy metal isn't cool. I might have to think about shelving that for a while, put it on the back burner. Um, which is sad, but you know, I, I was what, like 16, 17. So, you know, easily influenced by older, uh, much older kids, like, you know, six months to a year older at the time. But so I was still just trying to put all the pieces of this music stuff together, still going to shows at the Phoenix Theater, occasionally going to big arena shows. Like I went to a big uh, Metallica concert down in Oakland, um, went to a Nirvana and Red Hot Chili Peppers concert in San Francisco. But but most of my show going was like smaller level stuff at the Phoenix. Um, and because it was the nineties and because I was a teenager, my friends and I were all really big into acting wild and crazy and wacky back then. So like when we would go to shows, we wouldn't just like stand there stoically watching. We would always be like exaggeratedly dancing around and, uh, hamming it up, you know, cause, uh, alternative, woo, crazy extreme. So, um, uh, and while all this was going on too, like I said, there were these older kids that were kind of more settled into their interest in alternative music at my high school. And like I had always been throughout my childhood, it was another group I was trying to get over with to try to, maybe maybe this is finally the group I'm going to find my home in. So I've been kind of courting some of the people, some of the older alternative kids and trying to learn their ways. And, um, one of them in particular was this total 90s alternative guy. He drove like a VW bug. He was like a surfer dude. Um, wore like a crazy mishmash of uh of uh reggae slash punk slash whatever the hell 90s outfits uh kind of like oakley sunglasses and uh, uh was generally thought to be a cool dude um he he had a brother maybe an older brother that was in a band and i found out that um i was going to show uh that night at the phoenix theater we were at school that day and uh, I found out I was going to see his brother's band. So I was like, yeah, dude, we're going to go see your brother's band. And he's like, oh, killer, bro. Yeah, I'll be there. So I thought, you know, this is going to be a meeting of the minds. I'm going to, we're, this is, things are happening finally. So me and a friend of mine named Matt went to that show that night. And we went to see the brother's band. And I can't even remember who else was playing on that show. But the brother's band was just kind of like, you know, a 90s alternative band. Uh, I don't even remember what they sounded like. But um, and th- there was hardly anyone at the show. And Matt and I were just doing, like, wild and crazy, exaggerated dancing in front of the stage. I think Matt was wearing, like, a jester's hat and uh, meaning absolutely nothing ill-intentioned by it. This is just how we acted at um, every show we went to at the Phoenix Theater. But the dude whose brother was in the band, um, as we're dancing around, comes up to us and kind of has this exaggeratedly happy look on his face. And we thought, oh, he's into the He acts like us, too. Great. 90s. Alternative. Yeah. Um, he put one arm around me, one arm around my friend Matt, and proceeded to slam both of our heads together as hard as he could. And was like, you're embarrassing me, you're embarrassing the band, you're embarrassing yourselves, you're embarrassing everyone here. So apparently our antics were not, um, not did not meet with his seal of approval. And a switch went off for me at that moment. And I was like, you know what? F this. I'm, I'm, I'm over it. I'm not trying to get it over with anyone anymore. I'm doing my own damn thing. 
I don't even like this band that's playing. I don't like most of the music I'm listening to. I'm gonna focus in on what I like. You know what I like? I like that band Green Day. You know what I like? I like the Misfits. You know what I like? And I proceeded to list off a litany of, of punk bands that I was into in my mind, and that's when I realized, gosh darn it, I'm going straight punk rock. And that is exactly what I proceeded to do. Over the next couple weeks, I started to weed out all evidence of metal, of kind of funk punk, of any just more general alternative music out of my room. Um, I cut my hair. I had really long hair at that point in time uh, from my metal uh, and Faith No More days. I had just let it grow and eventually it got out of that mullet stage and was legitimate bonafide long hair. That got cut off. Um, made sure to surround myself only with music that I deemed um, fit into the punk rock genre. Um, started wearing this weird outfit that I kind of put together for myself, which I would wear like kind of thermal uh, thermal tops and thermal bottoms with like kind of ratty punk rock shirts uh, over the top, uh, thermal t-shirts over, over the thermal top, and then uh, like uh, shr- kind of shredded cut-off jean shorts over the thermal bottoms, Converse All-Stars, backwards hat. Dude, it was hardcore punk rock for life. <laughs> but... Along with this, what I noticed was that um, I, I, somewhere along the line, I'd, I'd picked up on the fact that that Green Day, um, their records, which I had at this at by this point, um, they were put out by a record label called Lookout Records. And there was a band I talked about way back uh, when I first started talking about music in this episode um, called Operation Ivy. That was also it kind of stood out similarly to me, uh, like Green Day had. And it was, they were also on Lookout Records. And um, right around that time, there was an article in Rolling Stone magazine, I believe, maybe Spin, but I think it was Rolling Stone, and it was an article about Lookout Records, which was a, a small record label out of Berkeley at the time, run by a guy named Larry Livermore. But they were start- a lot of their bands were starting to get kind of some national buzz and attention, and um, this uh, article just kind of ran down some of the bands that were on the... Um, uh, record label. And so I think it was for my birthday one summer during the high school years, around the time that that article came out, somehow my mom saw the article, um, or no, you know what it was? She was looking for, uh, she wanted to buy me some tapes for, um, uh, my birthday or maybe it was Christmas, whatever. Uh, I went down to the last record store and she mentioned some of the bands that I liked. She mentioned Green Day, and I think they might have cited that article. And uh, there were a few other bands I hadn't heard of that were listed in that article. Uh, first and foremost, uh, for the purpose of this podcast among them, was a band called Screeching Weasel. Now, Screeching Weasel was a punk band from Chicago, but they were on Berkeley's Lookout Records. And my mom bought me that tape, and that tape, uh, it was their uh, album, uh, My Brain Hurts. That tape literally changed my life. When I heard that tape, it was like everything I liked about every band I'd ever liked all put into one band with lyrical content that spoke directly to me. Um, And furthermore, as I got to know more about the band, more about the front man, Ben Weasel, who wrote for a uh, San Francisco-based kind of underground magazine called Maximum Rock and Roll, um, his viewpoint was so similar to mine. I, I just, I finally found something that I could just throw myself into full bore, and it's like, I claim this, and I have no reservations about it whatsoever. So I became a huge Screeching Weasel fan, 
and really started to become a Lookout Records fan in general and realized there was this whole scene going on not that far from me. Uh, you know, about an hour away in Berkeley, a lot of these bands were playing regularly at this place, Gilman Street. So I, that started to become where I started going to see shows in addition to the Phoenix Theater. And that was a very different scene because where the Phoenix catered to all kinds of different music. Uh, Gilman Street was dedicatedly a punk rock club, and it was um, operated on punk rock DIY values. It was um, $5 cover charge, all ages, no alcohol, volunteer run, um, all with these kind of lofty ideals and intents of making it a place where everyone was welcome. Because and I, I can't, I, I won't go into it too hardcore here. Um, I'll probably talk about it more as the episodes go on. Cause I realize there's so much material I have to cram in here that goes just beyond the music itself. There's no way or, or, this is already going to be a supersized episode. Anyhow, by the 1990s punk, which had started in the seventies is kind of this snarling antisocial dangerous thing had turned into this kind of like do gooder, um, scene where it was all about like equality and, uh, um, you know, egalitarianism, and not, not that there's enough necessarily anything wrong with that, but it's just it's strange to me looking back now how that was born out of F you, I'll spit on you, punk rock, you know, I don't know, whatever. But um, so Gilman Street was part of the scene that was very much in line with these very rigid, dogmatic ideas of what it was to be an ethical person, what it was to be a good person, what it was to be a punk rocker. And it was all about no major labels, no major record labels, only indie bands. Um, a lot of people were into like veganism. Um, uh, interestingly, the main band that I was into, Screeching Weasel, was not about this at all. That guy, Ben Weasel, even though he was on Lookout Records, kind of made his bones being sort of a troll against the more do-gooder punk scene. He was kind of a curmudgeon, which is why that appealed to me because I always kind of felt that way. Do-gooderism, it's not that I'm like a horrible person that doesn't believe in doing good, but time and time and time again, when I see groups of people proclaiming to do good, it always just feels like it's more of a way of deflecting their own character flaws or shortcomings by making a huge show of um, believing in kind of a do-gooder um, uh, set of values. I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but you know, it's like just do good. I don't, you know, <laughs> we don't need to all hear about it and engage who's doing more good than, than someone else. You know, I don't know. That's just how I feel about it. I, I always just feel, I've always felt do gooder scenes to be sort of somewhat disingenuous. Um, now that does not mean that I did not do my best to try to fit in with the whole Gilman, uh, nineties, do gooder punk scene as it was unfolding. I, I was all in. I, I had finally found my people, or so I thought. Um, interestingly, back in Santa Rosa, back at Montgomery High School, a very strange thing was happening, um, which is that, you know, for years I would often get um, at best ignored, at worst mocked for the things that I was interested in, including the music I was interested in. Because although by the time I got to high school, there was a, definitely a critical mass of older kids that were into alternative music, it had not been a thing that was considered cool at Slater Junior High School. And even at Montgomery High School, you know, I had a hard time uh, because because with these groups of people, everything is always so much about protocol and fitting the mold. And because for whatever reason, growing up, I didn't understand this and didn't have anyone who was really showing me the ropes or smartening, smartening me up. Um, I had a hard time getting over even when people were interested in the th same things I was interested in. But for some reason now at this point when I had kind of like 
veered wildly off onto my own path along with the um, small but growing group of friends that I had, um, our interest in this stuff started to coincide with it uh, gaining kind of uh, greater popularity. The kind of punk music we were into started to become um, a little more popular. More and more people were getting into it. But the thing is, is that me and my friends had been at the vanguard of being into it. So we started to be looked to as people that you know knew about it. So for the first time in my life, I'd have people kind of coming up to me in like a socially deferential way, kind of wanting to be down, which was bizarre. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was going on back at school. I was becoming Mr. Hardcore Joe Cool Punk Rocker. Uh, was probably pretty like annoyingly insufferable by this point because yeah, dude, I'm punk rock and I have a band. Because by this point, uh, me and the guy Tony, who I'd had uh, an epiphany about Green Day with um, a year or so prior, and the guy named Sean had started our own band, The Invalids. So not only was I going to shows now, I was playing shows, and uh, this was just such a crazy time period because. I, I look back at it now sometimes, and it's like I took it so much for granted then. But we were going to see shows and we were playing shows with all these bands that went on to be fairly well known. I mean, obviously, Green Day, um, the band AFI was around at that time uh, in that scene, um, Rancid, um, Jawbreaker, all kinds of bands that went on to have. Um, you know, as far as punk bands go, relatively decent mainstream success. But I just kind of assumed that was life back then. You know, I thought that, and the, the crazy thing too is like, you know, I, I was in a band, we started our band. There were absolutely no expectations of any kind of success. The biggest expectation we had as a band was to someday play a show at the Phoenix Theater. And that happened pretty early on in our existence. So I, anything that happened after that was bonus. You know, it, it wasn't like... Over the course of probably the next five years after that, um, going into the late 90s, there started to become the idea that you, like indie bands could get big, could make money, and that started to become more of a you know ego, money, uh, fame, all that stuff, which isn't really out there for most bands, trust me. Um, that started to become more of a motivation for bands. But when we were doing it, it was really just straight up. We just... If we weren't playing on stage at this club, we'd just be playing in the living room at one of our parents' houses. You know, that's because we just want to play punk music. And uh, that's what we did. And I took it totally for granted. I uh, thought it would be going on forever. And I don't want to go too deep into my band because that's got to be its own show. But, you know, we did eventually end up putting out a seven inch uh, EP record on Lookout Records. Um, and again, it's something I just, that's just what happens. It, you know, totally took it for granted. Looking back now, it, it was a wild time and um, I wish I had appreciated it more, but at the same time, I, I don't necessarily regret it. I had fun. It was cool. Um, and so the next couple of years kind of chugged along in this great punk rock euphoria, go, going to see bands, playing, having a great old time, but again, not really taking it too seriously, just assuming it was going to go on forever. And then all of a sudden, in the late 90s, there was like just a huge music crash, it felt like. Now, some of that was my own perspective, I'm sure. Uh, it was a weird time period for me. By the late 90s, you know, high school was over. Uh, people were kind of scattering to the winds. Either some people went away to college, some people just moved away, some people died. Um, I was just kind of working dead-end retail jobs and sort of half-heartedly going to the local junior college, but... The whole 
scene that had been around me and all my high school friends and going to see bands all the time that had kind of that had kind of fallen apart and a lot of the magic was gone from it a lot of the bands were gone green day signed to a major label they were gone um I was starting to find like that whole Gilman scene to just be so oppressive, just how dogmatic and unimaginative they were about, you know, how, you know, if you're not wearing this, that means you're a bad person. And if you're not saying that you don't like this thing, then we don't know if you're allowed into the club. And, you know, it it just, you know, if I wanted that, it'd just become like a go back to being Catholic or something. (laughs) I don't know. It was just weird. Um, so that became hard to deal with and I got disillusioned. I, I started to realize too that for, and I'm realizing I, I, I got to do, um, a dedicated show just about some stories from the, from the punk days, but, uh, cause it's too hard to cram it in just talking to, interspersed with music here. But, um, uh, for a few years there, I really felt that I had finally found a group that I could be a part of that made sense. But it really became clear that, um, I don't mean it to sound like, um, there's just no group that, that gets me, man, because I definitely had strong, uh, relationships with small groups of individuals, but as far as large groups go, I mean, it just kind of the lesson that I learned, you're never going to really find a group that really works for you unless you're willing to give yourself over to conforming to the group. And that's always been hard for me because I think I, I'm more suited to strong relationships with small groups of individuals rather than really belonging to a large group. And punk, for all of its um, claims to uh, nonconformity, to anti-authoritarianism, is really, as a group, as authoritarian and as conformist as any group, if not more so, um, possibly because of the fact that it's it's claiming to be against those things. It, it creates these kind of uh, fascist structures um, that are almost worse than the structures that it's trying to uh, – fight against, if that makes any sense. Um, just, the, just the sheer level of ridiculousness with like the, the uniforms that people feel the need to wear in punk to, to prove that they're punk uh, and how they police other people. And it just, it, it kind of runs course for me. I wanted to listen to the music I wanted to listen to. If it happened to be punk, that's great. If not, oh well. Um, and, and really what I ended up doing was kind of internalizing some of the values I picked up in that group and, and trying to like transcend them past being part of a group and just applying them to life in general to kind of do your own thing, um, do what works for you, find the people that, that work for you uh, to have in your life, um, ditch the rest. And so kind of ditched, I ditched the rest. <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, so I, that life that I'd had going for a few years uh, in high school that was all about punk rock, all about going to see bands, all about, all about playing in bands, that had started to fade away by the late nineties. But then also it wasn't just that it was that, um, during kind of the mid nineties, when that kind of resurgence of East Bay punk was big, um, it felt like, um, in conjunction with that, just sort of mainstream music was better. Um, like the, the, all the cool stuff that was going on in the underground was informing the mainstream. So the mainstream, um, I mean, when, when like Nirvana is top 40 radio, you know, that's, that's not a bad era for, for popular music, you know? But uh, by this point, though, a lot of the indie bands that had been informing the mainstream had become the mainstream, so that was cool. But there wasn't much left in their wake, and you started getting all this whole kind of, like, influx of other mainstream bands that were just bad, 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 like, Xeroxes of a Xerox of a Xerox of bands like Nirvana, bands like Green Day. And so you started, started having stuff. Like, I remember I was working at this uh, discount bookstore in Santa Rosa, 
and I would uh, be in the back office uh, doing like shipping and receiving and uh, they'd have the radio on back there uh, tuned to the local FM rock station and it was all that horrible stuff like there's this band um, they had that song it was like I smell sex and candy and like that and then that horrible freaking Carlos Santana record where he did like duets with people um Oh, thankfully, I can't even remember that one song anymore. It's not coming to mind. But it's just like Kid Rock and like all this just like bad. I don't know, it was just sad. It was depressing. Um, I, I realized it, it was, uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite bands comes to mind right now, Cinderella. And I just feel, uh, you know, don't know what you got till it's gone is swelling. And it, it, I, I realized, you know, dang, something really special was going on for a few years. I just kind of hazed through it thinking it was going to go on forever. And it is gone. So I really fell out with music at that point. It stopped being a big part of my life. Um, I had a little spark. Um, when I was working at that bookstore, a book came out called Please Kill Me, which is kind of an oral history of punk rock music, but like the earliest wave of punk rock music, like the uh, New York City 1970s stuff, like Johnny Thunders and all that. And uh, so I started, I, I was really taken with that book and I started uh, listening to a lot of that music, but it, you know, it was old, it was gone. It wasn't coming back, you know, so it wasn't like it, I was listening to something current that I could really participate in. It was just kind of like antiquarian, you know, enjoying stuff from the past. Got into that. Um, I went through a phase during that time too, where I started listening to a lot of country music, like uh, Merle Haggard, George Jones, Waylon Jennings. Um, but still just, you know, it was just something kind of on the side. It wasn't... Um, a big part of my life. Music has never returned to being a big part of my life. It just hasn't. It's, uh, it was such a part of my life for so many years. And in the later stages of my life so far, it just doesn't play as big a part. It, uh, I still listen to music. Um, I still listen to heavy metal music from glam metal all the way through thrash metal, even a little death metal. Still listen to punk rock music. I listen to country music. I listen to rap and hip hop music. And I actually totally forgot. I didn't even talk about that um, whole uh kind of side journey of mine here um i started listening to rap music around the same time when i was like riding my skateboard or bike down to get tapes from music land because i realized um i started to see a, a natural connection between kind of edgier alternative and punk music and edgier gangster rap music like ice cube and ice tea so i started listening to that stuff too and then sure enough like those worlds did start to collide later on down the line like ice tea had a metal band and all that but um uh, and then um, as far I, – I thought that that kind of stuff was like the gold standard as far as hip-hop. And then many years later – not many years, a few years later, when I was working at the UA6 movie theater in Santa Rosa, that's where I first met Icy Robots, he kind of smartened me up to um, real hip-hop music, kind of East Coast. I, I hate to say it because I'm from the West Coast here and I'm going to claim uh, West Coast is the best coast. But when it comes to hip-hop, really the East Coast stuff is just the, – the quality is, is – light years above the, the, the posturing gangster crap we have out here so he kind of smartened me up to that and I listened to that but again I, I was like with that it was just I was on the outside looking in um, but but I still appreciate it I listen to all that stuff um, I listen to like Japanese pop music uh, but you know it's all just kind of background for me now um, I listen to all my music through uh, Apple Music you know I pay like 15 bucks a month and I have access to like everything that's in the Apple catalog. Don't tell any of my punk rock friends that that's what I do too. I totally buy everything on vinyl, <laughs> everything on vinyl, everything locally. But no, I listen to, I, I stream Apple music. <laughs> I don't have money for, uh, I spent all my money on professional wrestling, uh, 
uh, watching professional wrestling shows. I don't got anything left over for background music. But um, so yeah, I fully embraced the the uncool um, world of of not even just MP3s, but just like streaming music that you don't even own. What do I care? You know, I'll, I'll give Apple my fifteen bucks a month. That's 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 less than like one record, right? So kind of a glum end here, but that, that's the end of my life in music. Um, glad you came along for the ride. It was kind of a long one. Um, like I said, um, still kind of getting my legs under me with the format of the show, and I was realizing in telling these stories that, that uh, there were certain stories I wanted to tell, but it was too much to cram into to one um, theme here. But, you know, it's a learning process, and when I talk about certain things, it's going to give me more fodder for things to talk about next time and on down the road. And I definitely want to tell more actual um, detailed tales of my life with the punks. So that'll be somewhere in the future. Um, I feel like there were some other things in here that uh, spoke to, to issues and stories I want to get more in depth in. But it, this is just kind of a nice overview of where I was at growing up musically, where I'm at now musically, and just kind of a funny, funny to think back how, um, you know, something that played such a big part in my life at one point in time. And actually, in, in, um, with the perspective of years, not for that, for that long of a period of time, just a couple of years, really, in the grand scheme of things. It's, I've had more time of life now not caring about music than I did being intensely interested in it. But still, it was a huge formative time in my life, and thank you for letting uh, me share it with you. Uh, next time... Next time, I think I'm going to uh, delve into some tales from Bennett Valley. Bennett Valley, neighborhood here in Santa Rosa where I grew up. We're going to tell some tales from BV. Um, probably talk about some other stuff, but it'll come to me. I <laughs> don't necessarily have it in front of me. Thanks for bearing with this supersized episode uh, this week. Just really wanted to wrap up this theme. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope it wasn't too unrelatable. Um, until next time. Thanks for letting me be sensational. Thanks for being sensational with me for the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. This is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega signing off. This has been a Joseph S. Mama production on the Ice and Robots Radio Network. Yarr!